to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to the second episode of the Recent Developments in Business and Corporate Litigation podcast series. My name is Ann Stedman. I'm an associate at Ross Aaron Sam and Moritz in Wilmington, Delaware. And my practice focuses on corporate and commercial litigation, mostly in the Delaware Court of Chancery. I am one of the two co-editors of the ABA Recent Developments 2020 book. Thanks, Anne. Uh, my name is Jessica Mendelson, and I'm an associate at Paul Hastings in the Palo Alto office, where I practice employment law with a focus on employee mobility and trade secrets. And I'm the other co-editor of the ABA Recent Developments 2020 book. Thanks, Jessica. Today, we have two fantastic speakers joining us to discuss recent developments in trial practice. We have Gina Ferrari and Chelsea Mikola the co-editors of the ABA Recent Developments 2020 Trial Practice Chapter, and they're going to talk to us about some recent developments in trial practice. Gina is a partner at Safarth Shaw LLP, where she specializes in complex commercial litigation. She's a member of Safarth's national trial team. She co-chairs the San Francisco Commercial Litigation Group and is a member of the National Litigation Department Leadership Team. Chelsea is a partner at Tucker Ellis, LLP, where she is a trial lawyer with a focus on complex commercial litigation. Both Gina and Chelsea bring valuable perspectives and insights into trial practices, as well as the impact that the current COVID-19 situation has had and will continue to have on these practice areas. So I'm going to turn it over to our two panelists. First of all, In general, how have trials been impacted by COVID-19? Thank you, Anne. Uh, This is Gina, and I think that everyone listening will know that litigation has largely slowed down uh, where there has been an opportunity to slow down cases. Clients are indeed asking for that to happen. And with the court closures, trials have been continued, most often without a new start date, simply because courts aren't open, so the courts can't determine how to schedule those trials. The courts are also struggling with how do you bring in juries and maintain appropriate distance considering the issues surrounding the pandemic. That being said, we've seen a increase in the filings of certain cases in March and April of 2020. Employment cases, insurance cases, patent cases, and securities cases have been filed, more have been filed in 2020 than in 2019. And while most courts, both state and federal, have been closed throughout the United States, uh, there have been several in March and April. April of 2020. So 91 trials in federal courts went forward in March of 2019, and 54 trials, and these are civil trials, went forward in March of 2020, which I found to be actually a a surprisingly large number. And the comparison for April is 35 trials, civil trials in district courts went forward in 2019, and nine cases were tried 
in April of 2020. Uh, I certainly, Chelsea, I don't know where those trials were, but they weren't in California, and I doubt they were on the East Coast. Yeah, I don't think the coasts are the ones opening up, but I know the only Zoom trial I'm aware of was a one-day bench trial in Texas. Um, And I know that went forward. As far as the other jury trials, I believe there was one in Connecticut. And things, I think, are starting to open up sort of in the Midwest and other areas not on the coast. Uh, And certainly the Zoom jury trial was an interesting uh, endeavor by both the court, the jurors, um, and everyone sort of that participated. Uh, But it did reach a verdict, and a verdict uh, was uh, delivered. It's a non-binding case, so I think that's why they were more willing to try the jury trial. In Texas, they have summary jury proceedings uh, where it's sort of a free bite at the apple to see how a jury might rule on your case, so it's non-binding. And you know, they had the typical technology snafus. Uh, one juror took a phone call in the middle of trial. One juror spent 10 minutes changing their virtual background. Um, so that's the only virtual trial that I am aware of that has gone forward. Uh, but there are some states... Uh, that did allow, I think it's more pressing matters, um, you know, things that really can't be delayed much further. But here in Ohio, I have now had several trials rescheduled um, with the anticipation that they will go forward in the fall. Some of those are bench trials. And so the judge said witnesses and attorneys can socially distance. um, But we also uh, have some jury trials that are now being scheduled with the hope that they can maintain social distancing and meet the CDC guidelines come uh, fall or early 2021. We're seeing here in California jury trials opening up both in federal and state court, at least uh, pursuant to the schedule from the courts, um, anticipated to begin in September of 2020. You know, I, I anticipate that criminal trials will go before and there'll be a backlog, but we're looking at a a few months after what you're seeing right now in the Midwest. Yeah. And I think there's going to be, I mean, you raised the issue of the uh, insurance disputes. I think those are starting to rear their heads. Some of those are on an injunction basis. And I think one of the increased upticks that we're going to see as far as types of cases would be the force majeure type cases. I know I'm working on a number of those for clients um, and, you know, whether or not the pandemic meets the force majeure provision, which is a very, factual, intense uh, issue to consider for clients. But I think that will be in addition to insurance and all the other areas you saw the uptick in and those numbers, um, some other areas that we'll see. Chelsea and Gina, this is Jessica. Um, What should lawyers be doing now on their cases, given that it sounds like most of these trials are continued um, and that they may not have trials until at least the fall? Yeah, I mean, this is Chelsea. I think I would say... What they're doing now to prepare for trial, I don't think is that different than what they should normally be doing. But, you know, Gina and I have talked about, we both anticipate a very heavy influx of cases and activity come fall. And so I'm working on several of my cases now, probably earlier than I normally would have. And in some where I don't have a for sure trial date, but we're past summary judgment, the case has been worked up. And so I'm starting to work on some of the witness outlines and really prepare for trial because I'm anticipating a very busy fall or early uh, 2021. Um, I know they've said, I've seen a statistic that some 10,000, while that includes civil and criminal trials are not occurring. Um, You know, criminal are going to take a, a, precedent over civil trials when it comes to rescheduling. 
But once things open up, it's going to be a pretty hectic time. So I would say focusing on discovery and working everything up um, to the extent you're not doing that. And I have now received many notices in my cases with the courts compelling settlement conferences um, from some judges that typically don't issue those types of orders. And so we're taking a hard look at cases um, and seeing, you know, just from a client perspective, does it make sense to resolve this matter? Um, Maybe when in other circumstances, we might not evaluate this as a case for resolution. Uh, We're reevaluating that now. So what Chelsea and I have talked about with the uptick in work when the courts open up is that we suspect that judges are going to want to clear their docket. Um, Certainly there's going to be a backlog. And typically if you're a a defense attorney, um, I think more pressure is put on you to settle quicker if there's a shorter period of time for you to prepare for trial. And um, of course, I think we're going to get notice that the trials will be reset and that we're going to all be going to uh, mandatory settlement conferences in short order. So I don't think there's going to be a long lead up to your opportunity to prepare for trial. So if your clients are um, willing right now to pay for you to do the work to prepare for trial, Chelsea and I strongly recommend you do all the best practices, you engage in all the best practices that um, are in any practice guide and are included in our, our chapter, which is know your judge, know your judge rules, know what needs to go into your pretrial filings, know your local rules, know, um, go and get information from your partners about how your judge is going to behave during trial. Certainly things are going to be different, but really demeanor, rulings on motions and the like is is going to still be the same. Um, Maybe we're going to have a kinder experience within court uh, because we're, we're worried about people's health, but I, I don't think that that's ultimately going to change how judges call balls and strikes. You should be ready for that because the turnaround is going to be short. Chelsea and I are also seeing people engaging in remote mock trials and folks doing that to help develop their case themes. And we think it's really important. I think a number of things a number of topics we'll talk about today um, will hinge on this case theme issue based on really does your case theme change because of what's happened in the world in the last quarter? This is Anne. That's a really interesting topic, just um, more thinking about how the recent events have sort of affected our collective psyche and maybe affected how jurors think. Um, do either of you have any predictions or thoughts on on how case themes might might be changing or evolving? Yeah, this is Chelsea. Um, I certainly think that you have both sort of hit the nail on the head. And you know, jury trials are a lot of psychology and predicting the way when you have your veneer and you're trying to fill the box. Uh, how might certain jurors, based on socioeconomic, political Uh, what have you, uh, sort of factors, how might they decide your case? Um, And all of that has not completely been thrown out the window, but it's been turned on its head. Um, I mean, a lot of people have experienced um, sort of the past few months that they didn't expect, and it has changed a lot of people's outlook 
uh, and views of the world. And there are very few people, if anybody, who has not been impacted on this on both you know, a monetary and emotional level. Um, I think the advice out there is, you know, when you're selecting your jury, not to focus on the pandemic and the quarantine and all of that, um, but to realize that what you might have thought were tendencies before now might be to a much more widespread audience. Um, and so I think in selecting the jury at the forefront, um, you can't ignore what has now sort of changed um, the path of sort of, and just sort of just human interaction in general. Um, so I think that would be a really important point. And one of the things that I've seen that I thought was very good advice is that you're really going to need to sort of screen the hardship uh, questions uh, for your jury. Uh, typically, you know, we would ask questions about childcare um, and whether or not, you know, they had an issue with sitting in a two to three week jury trial. Uh, we had questions about health, but now there are very few people, at least in my circle, who don't have uh, significant childcare issues without schools being open. Um, they're talking about opening schools here in the fall in Ohio. Um, so that will certainly free up some uh, people. But right now, I mean, there's very few jurors who could actually probably sit on a jury. Um, and, you know, if I've heard a lot of people say that virtual trials might become a new trend, I find that hard to believe for a host of reasons. One, access to the internet is certainly a consideration. And I just don't think you can try a case with that same interaction with witnesses and jury and screen people like you could have uh, face-to-face. So I don't see that picking up, but there are certainly several people uh, that are predicting that might be a shift in the way we try cases. I, th- I also think that we should expect that there will be hardships because folks have already been out of work or have been working for reduced hours during this time and they're not going to have one, two, three weeks that they can then again take more time off from work. So some of the thought leadership has been to ask your judge if you can provide the hardship questions on paper like you would a questionnaire and that those go out with the jury notice and that you get those back. Uh, To Chelsea's point, I think if you have remote trials, you really need to start thinking about how you're going to pull from a different veneer because there is a different access to and ability to be on the internet throughout the day. Uh, The courts are also, while they're able to um, provide programs right now where they're making sure people are socially distanced in the courtroom, in the jury box, at the lectern, and providing um, repeated cleaning within the courtroom. Many courts I've heard are struggling with the idea, how do I actually even bring in the larger veneer? So it's pretty easy to come up with a way to put uh, six to 12 people in the jury box and maybe question 20 or 25 people at a time if you have a larger courtroom because they can sit in the pews. But if you're typically pulling a 100-person veneer and the court usually has a room with fold-out chairs, they don't have enough space to socially distance. So we're also seeing here in California, in February, folks just weren't showing up for jury duty. So we should all expect, and I I think you should be communicating with, with the judge and opposing counsel, that it may be hard to fill a jury box. 
So when we're talking about the best advice to give you, give trial lawyers right now, it's prepare early, engage with the judge and opposing counsel, and know that this, the logistics and the steps towards seating a jury are going to take longer and are going to need to be collaborative and creative, frankly. Some very interesting considerations, for sure, um, in terms of, you know, both having, having a sufficient pool of jurors and whether or not we can get a representative sample of jurors when, you know, only some people will have access to technology if that's the way we go or um, when there are only going to be certain demographic um, types of people who are comfortable coming to the courthouse and able to do so. So some very interesting considerations. Jessica, did you have any further, further questions? Um, yes. So one thing I was wondering as you're speaking, um, is there something that another lawyer or like a colleague or opposing counsel um, has taught you or that you've witnessed that has made you change some aspect of your trial strategy? I, Chelsea, will know that I, we've both talked on this before, and I think it segues really nicely with what we just talked about with choosing a jury and uh, representative sampling and how you're going to handle the veneer. What I thought was most interesting is I had a, a judge a few years ago ask for us to present what I would call a dirty opening. So um, 10 minutes about what the jurors were going to hear in the case with a little bit of argument to the larger veneer before hardships. So uh, what happened was we got folks who were really interested in the facts of the case ended up staying when they might otherwise have said they had a hardship. And that might be an idea, some sort of hybrid of presenting that maybe on paper now or on a virtually prior to bringing in the jurors into the jury box so that you can get a little bit more buy-in and um, get the the right people that are going to come to your trial and sit through your trial. It has only been positive for me. I was reluctant to do it in the first instance, and I've now asked for it in every trial I've had since. And I truly find you get a, a better, more interested segment of the, jur uh, the jury pool staying for you. Yeah, I think that's great. I wish more judges did that because I've had that on a few, a handful of occasions and I find it to be extremely beneficial. So similar to your experience. And, I, and Jessica, I think it's a great question. And I think that's a tough question. I've been blessed with some great mentors over the years that have tried a heck of a lot more cases than I have um, and have taught me some invaluable lessons. And, you know, some of those are don't prepare your closing statement until uh, you know, the night before, because you want to respond to the evidence that's gone in and what witnesses have said. And if you prepare an outline before, you might be wed to that outline. Um, I had a great mentor who taught me that your opening statement should be a puzzle for the jury, and you're giving them individual puzzle pieces to put together um, to basically finish the puzzle by the end of the trial. And all of those were great tips. But I will say the most invaluable thing I've been taught and was hard for me to learn is a young lawyer, especially as a defense lawyer, is there will certainly be ebbs and flows and to not react to individual witnesses and uh, evidence presentations. Uh, as a defense lawyer, you go second. And so sometimes you're sitting there for a week to a week and a half of listening to the plaintiff's case. 
And that's something you have to desensitize yourself to um, because you can, you know, clients might get rattled and want to talk settlement, but you have to really realize that some witnesses will go well and some won't. And there's been some cases where I would have thought in plaintiff's case, they were absolutely going to receive a plaintiff's verdict. And we stood strong and we put on a great defense case. Um, and, you know, we just had to hold out um, and continue to believe in our case and our argument. So I would say, you know, there will be ebbs and flows. Some will be positive, some will be negative, but don't reach conclusions till the end, which is the same lesson we try and teach jurors, but that's a hard lesson for them to appreciate as well. That's definitely a challenging one. I feel like in some ways it's almost harder not to react than it is to react. And you really have to make yourself think about doing that. I agree. Well, thank you both so much, Gina and Chelsea. Some great stories and tips. Um, Very interesting topic and very interesting, especially in, in light of the recent situation, just how things are going to evolve for trials. Um, We hope everybody's going to join us on our next podcast and we're going to go further and deeper into some of our other chapters from the book and hear from some other great business law practitioners on their perspectives, both in their practice areas and also talking about how recent trends and developments in the world today are impacting them. So um, we're looking forward to it and we hope that you will join us next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.